uh, we're going, doing a series, and it's through the book of Judges, so we're just going paragraph by paragraph and trying to cover some of the lives of the judges. We're coming, and we're in the midst. We did this morning, and we're doing this evening, the, the study that's given on the life of a man called Jephthah. L- let me back up and just, as we get started here. In, uh, you've, you've studied this, all of you who have been in any kind of U.S. history, that the War of 1812 took place, and there was that, that conflict between the United States. The United States invaded our neighbor to the north, went into Canada, and burned down the city of York and present-day Toronto. And then here, months later, the British got down into D.C. and they burned the Capitol, burned the White House, and the Madisons had to flee for their lives. And we know that what happened tragically is that war lasted a couple of years, and then in December, as we put up here, December 14th, 1814, there's the treaty signed. The Treaty of Ghent was signed in Belgium. And so the war was done. But we all know, and I've heard the story, that the biggest battle of the War of 1812 occurred weeks after the treaty was signed. Do you remember the battle? Yeah, the Battle of New Orleans. That happened on January 8th, several weeks after the war was over. That's where Stonewall Jackson, or Andrew Jackson, excuse me, Andrew Jackson and his troops fought off the British when they were coming to invade. And 2,000 people died in that battle, most of them, almost all of them being the British. There is something to be said about when we make the comment that ignorance is bliss, not for those 2,000 people. Not for the people who went into the battle that all of a sudden they lost their life over a war that was already resolved because there wasn't the awareness that the resolution had been made. The the bottom line is this. We act, they did, they acted upon what they knew. And even if there was misinformation, they acted based upon what they thought was, was the facts. That happens in our lives a lot. There's individuals who maybe they have the wrong facts, but they'll act them out. I was reading an account, true story, about what happened about a year, year and a half ago, when in one of those cities, remember, when there was all kinds of, of uproar that was taking place with the police, uh, police and, and the encounters that they had, and some of these cities had, had um, riots going on in the cities. And there was one place where a reporter went up to a lady who was sitting in her car, and she was sitting right outside a store that people were running in and running out. They had broken the windows, and they were basically just robbing the place. And he walked up to her, and she kind of was just staring straight at him and said, Ma'am, are you okay? You know, he was fearful that maybe she was in danger and just terrified, couldn't move. She says, No, I'm fine. He says, Well, you, you look like you're... She says, Well, I'm just waiting for my family. My family went in the store shopping. And he said, Well... Now I'm really concerned. Is your family safe? And she says, yeah, they went in like everybody else through the windows. They're shopping. And he says, you mean they're robbing the place? She says, oh, no, there's no clerks. Therefore, they're just shopping. Everything's free. And her mind, if there was no clerks, everything was free. It was okay to go in there. You know, the bottom line for that lady is she forgot that the God was inside. Her lack of knowledge and awareness impacted her and her family's decisions. And that can happen in many people's lives. What we think, how we view God. In fact, what we think and where we think God is. That makes a difference in what we do, does it not? When we stop and and think, wait a minute, God, uh, God can't see me at this moment. We do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. If we stop and think, now wait a minute, God does see me. That'll hold us back from doing certain things or saying certain things. What we think about God impacts us greatly. In fact, let's do the adverse. What we don't know, what we don't think about God, it impacts us greatly. If we don't know about a God who is willing to forgive us, that's going to impact some people with guilts in their lives that they may never get over. If we don't know 
that God wants us to be able to be a witness, that's going to impact people not carrying out the gospel. And so what we know about God is really critical. In fact, we want to continually learn about God and grow in our knowledge of God so that we can continue to grow in our daily life to become more godly. The more we know about God, the more godly we will be. So we come to a story of a man who really knew some good things about God that impacted him in a great way. I think where we're at in his story as it continues after the victory that he has, God continues some of his biography and tells us some things that happen. And I think what we come to tonight is we come to some flaws in his life because of what he didn't know about God. Here, let me give you what we have. Okay. He knew about God, so he did some really good things. We talked about him this morning. We talked about he calls upon the Lord. We pointed out in the text this morning that even when he's offered the job to become the judge, he takes it before the Lord. He goes before the Lord and he speaks to him. He knows about God enough that he's willing to forgive the family and the friends who had cast him out as a child from the city he grew up just because he's the illegitimate son of the man Gilead. So the neighbors put the pressure on Gilead. His family puts the pressure on. They cast him out. Years later, they come and they say, Jephthah, we need your help. And so he responds with what he knew about the Lord. He responds responds and says, I will be your defender. I will help Israel not be destroyed. And, you know, the peoples of God. He knew that God was willing and able to guide and direct in this battle. He's being led of the Lord. We'd pointed out in chapter 11, verses 29, 30, in that area, the Lord is leading as he's going from village to village. So he knows about God's leading. He knows enough that he responds in, in leading the battle. And as a result, I mentioned this morning, he ends up in the hall of faith the hall of fame, if you would, of believers in Hebrews in the New Testament as one of those outstanding Old Testament characters. That doesn't mean he's flawless. Moses ended up in the hall of fame. Abraham ended up in the hall of faith. David ends up in the hall of faith, but they also had flawed points in their lives. They were human like you and me. And so here we have a man who does some good things based upon what he knows, but he does some questionable things because of what he doesn't know or what he doesn't think about God. The one questionable thing that I think we want to look at, first of all, is the questionable thing where he makes a vow to do a sacrifice if God really gives him the victory. It's, it's almost like Gideon, where God has told Gideon, you're going to go to battle, you're going to win, and Gideon says, if it's really true, then let me throw a fleece out. The fleece isn't something commendable, but people grab onto it, because it was an act of little faith. I think the vow is the same thing. The vow that Jephthah does is out of little faith, not out of high faith. It's out of a low view of God, an immature view of God, not out of a mature, really loyal faith in God Almighty. Let me explain what we're talking about. Let's, let's look at the vow itself. It shows up in the text, and watch the scenario and the scene as it goes in chapter 11, verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. Okay, and that's very important. He's being led of God. He's being guided of God. He goes through Gilead, Manasseh, over, uh, uh, passes over Mizpah onto Gilead. From Mizpah, he goes to Gilead. And he's giving us a geographical trip that he is taking that's going to take several days. That he's going through and he's recruiting the troops to go against and fight against Ammon. 
Okay? Jephthah, at this moment, vows a vow unto the Lord and says, if you, and that's key words in my mind, if you will without fail deliver the children of Amnon into my hands, then it shall be whatsoever comes forth out of my house to meet me afterwards, when I return in peace from the children of Amnon, shall surely be the Lord's. I will offer it up to be a burnt offering." So Jephthah passed over into the children of Ammon. He fights against them. The Lord delivered them into his hands. He smote them. We talked about how he beats them, chases them back across Jordan, captures even 20 of their cities in the plain, and there's a great slaughter. They're totally subdued. Verse 34, Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his own house, and behold, his daughter comes out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. She is his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. Big emphasis, wants you to understand, the only kid. Okay? And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes, and he said, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back on my vow. She said, My father, if you opened your mouth unto the Lord and made a vow, do to me according to that which you proceeded out of your mouth, for as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for you upon our enemies, even the children of Ammon. She said unto her father, But let this thing be done unto me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down in the mountains and be well my virginity, I and my fellows. He said, go. He sent her away for two months. She went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. It came to pass at the end of the two months that she returned unto her father who did to her according to his vow, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it was the custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly afterwards to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. Wow, what's going on? Now, get the scene, the Spirit of the Lord. Key, key thoughts here. The Spirit of the Lord is leading him. That's very clear at this moment. God is leading him going into battle, okay? And it's going to cover a period of a few days that I mentioned where I gave you the, read the geographical scene. During that time is when he knows he's going to battle. He knows God is leading. But this is when he makes this vow that, God, if you will give me the victory... Then what I want you to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a sacrifice of some sort. The vow that he makes is the first thing that comes out of the house. Okay? And so we've read that scene. We understand that. He wins the big victory. He comes back and ends up his daughter comes out of the house. We've already read the scene. The uh, point is that he's grieved that he's going to make her a sacrifice that she's going to become this sacrifice. He insists that he cannot go back on the vow. She agrees. You cannot go back on the vow. If you made a vow to the Lord, you've got to keep it. Now, that's a commendable attitude. Okay? That, that's something positive in the story. The, and then he does according to his vow. The question is, and this is part of the question, part of the issue here, was this a human physical sacrifice unto death or not? Okay. We're not going to resolve that here in these moments. There's just no way. It's been debated in church history for years and years and years. Did he actually kill her as a sacrifice, or did he make her into a perpetual temple servant? And that was the sacrifice, the same as Hannah made of Samuel, her son, and gave him as a sacrifice unto the Lord, and he served in the temple. Now, there's debates over this. There's conversations that have gone. And just for you who do your study, your reading, and go a little bit beyond, here are some of the arguments that this was a real blood sacrifice that he killed his daughter. Here's the point, the, uh, the thoughts that they'll point out. He uses the term burnt offering, which almost always, not always, but almost always in the Old Testament means a physical sacrifice of blood to the death. 
Okay, and so that's, that word used there is what leads many to come to this conclusion. The other, the other thoughts are, he is grieving. All of a sudden, it's a word that he uses that he grieves. You become, you become um, how he says it, you have brought me very low. The idea in the Hebrew is that you have brought me to the end of myself. And I am just grief-stricken like somebody who is losing a family member for good. Their life is being taken. The idea that she wants this time to mourn, this time to prepare for her own death is what is implied is that some conclude that she is saying, okay, this is the end of my life. I want two months to just do whatever I'm going to do for the last two months of my life. The extent of mourning is what some point to, and they say, year after year, this is, this is a commemoration of her. And usually you don't do that with living people, you do that with people who you celebrate their day when, after they're, they're, uh, they've passed away. Just like last week, when it was you know, the holiday for Martin Luther King. It wasn't when he was alive, usually we do those things after they're dead. And so that's what's pointed out as well. The idea that, that the, uh, the Lord would, would, this would be the ultimate of sacrifices anybody could make. Even God asked this of Abraham at one time that he didn't carry through. But the idea of this is your chiefest of sacrifices. And some will point out that the Jews were infected by a lot of the corruption from the, from the pagan religions at that time, which some of them did do people's sacrifices. And so they'll say, okay, look at all these things and then add to it that according to Jewish tradition, Jewish writers in that era following all the way up and including in the New Testament era, many of the Jews, they made comments in their historical books that they believed it was a physical blood sacrifice. So you have people on that side. You have people like myself who are over on this side that will say, okay, I don't think it was a physical blood sacrifice. And for the reasons being that the Old Testament forbid this for the Jews. And they knew that. Jephthah knew Jewish writings well enough. He knew their history. Remember this morning? He points out when, when the Ammonites are going to attack, he, and they say, give us the land that our fathers, you took from our fathers. He goes back and talks about their history thoroughly. He knows their past. He knows their, what's been passed on. So he would know the word as well. Um, the idea, and it shows up a couple times in the Old Testament, where the women were gathered at the temple or assembled in the King James. They assembled at the temple. The Hebrew word sabah has the idea is they served there. So we have indication that there were times, and even like Samuel, people did dedicate their lives, and they came, and they, they, this was their livelihood, beyond the Levites, beyond the priests. There was others who dedicated themselves that this was going to be their livelihood, and this was going to be the extent of it. For some of these ladies, tradition tells us that that was also a vow of celibacy. Okay, we don't know in Scripture. We know that that wasn't the case for everyone that did that, such as Samuel who has sons in his later years. But we know that that happened. I think this, is, to me, is the most convincing argument. Look at what happens in the text. It doesn't talk about she's bewailing the fact she's going to die. It keeps on mentioning her virginity. It keeps on mentioning she's the only child. She's bewailing that she knew no man. That phrase comes over and over, and it's like that's the upsetting thing. Why would that be so upsetting if she's going to die? If she's giving her life was... That's so important to her, the sexual aspect. But if she's giving her life as a temple servant, as a celibate servant for the rest of her life, 
then this would be something that would be involved there. This would be a concern. Why? Because she is the only child of Jephthah. And as the only child of Jephthah who will not have any children, and if she's dead, she won't either, but if she's bewailing this fact, he, his bloodline is cut off. So knowing their concept and the idea of Old Testament thinking, having children, having grandchildren, having great-grandchildren was really, really, really important. It makes sense to me that that's why they're bewailing this fact because she is doing a vow, a vow, and he's agreed that she is going to become dedicated to the Lord this way. Leviticus 27 as well adds that you could dedicate an animal you could dedicate to the Lord as a sacrifice your house. You don't burn it. You just give it to the Lord for them to use. You could dedicate money in Leviticus 27. You could dedicate a family member to be dedicated unto the Lord, and that means that they're given to the Lord for his service, the home, the property, the money, the assets. So that idea of an offering unto the Lord doesn't always mean something that's burnt up and it's gone forever. I'm inclined to think. But either way, Again, you may have a different opinion. That's fine. That's not the, that's not the debate and that's not the conclusion of this study. The, con- the whole concern for me isn't what the, what the end was. It was the beginning of the vow. The beginning of the vow that what he does is, oh, by, by the way, I should point out, the Hebrew word where it says they go and they commemorate her in chapter 11, verse 40, every year, the word literally can be translated, they praised her, they praised her or they talked with her. They talked her up. So it doesn't disclude the idea that she wasn't there. Could be she was actually there and the conversation took place with her. The, the point was this. The point is that Jephthah is making a vow. The vow ends up being very painful to him. She and he agree that she has to follow through. It's not based on a real high view of God. It's the beginning of the vow that bothers me. What, I, what bothers me in this, in this concept is he makes a vow or a bargain in the midst of knowing God is leading. God is leading to warfare. And remember, he's had conversations with the Lord. He's gone to the Lord about, should I accept the judgeship? We don't have any revelation that tells us that God spoke to him and said, yes, you're going to be the judge. But he goes to the Lord, we have it. Then he went and talked to the Lord, and then he accepts the position. And so when he accepts the position and God is leading him, the Spirit of the Lord is leading him to go into battle, that's when he is questioning whether God is really in this thing. It's like Gideon's fleece. It's like Gideon at that night before the battle when God says, they're in your hands. I'm giving you the Amorites in your hand. Then he still is saying, is it going to happen? There's that hesitancy, that lack of total faith and trust that happens in this case where Jephthah makes a vow at those moments. He makes a vow that shows me this, that to me, that he isn't confident that God's going to see him through. God has seen me up to this point. I'm gathering the people. We're headed out to war. We're traveling for these few days. But God, if you're really going to be in it and stick with us and give us the victory. But God is leading. God is guiding. God is already made comment that he's going to help the Jews who have repented and he's going to give them relief. But Jephthah is doubting that. I wonder, I wonder if it's possible because his dad had taken him in his home, given him refuge for a period of years, and then his dad bailed on him when pressure came. Does he think God is that same type of a God? That God is going to be loyal and get me in the middle of something and then God bails on me. 
then God, then God will just desert me. So God, just to make sure you don't desert me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to do a money haul at this moment, and let's make a deal. That really dated me, okay, with that program. Okay, I'm going to make a deal with you. If you really see me through, like you said you would, then I'll make a sacrifice to you. The issue isn't the sacrifice, the issue is the deal he's making. The concept that he's trying to persuade and bargain with God for God to keep his covenant word that God has already given. That God, if you really mean that you will answer my prayers, then if you answer this prayer, I'll do something really spectacular and special for you. As if we can persuade God to keep his word. As if we can bargain with God to give God something that is precious to us so that God keeps his promise to us. He's doubting the promise of God. And and he's doing what people typically do. When people typically try to barter with God, bargain with God, they have this concept that if I inflict pain upon myself, it'll persuade God more. If I sleep on a bed of nails, then I'll really find God's favor. If I don't eat for a period of of weeks and months or stale bread or I sit up on a tower, if I go through a Lenten process or I sit on a tower and, and expose myself to all kinds of the elements, then God will really, really, really hear my prayer because I am suffering. I am going through pain and torment. And when we go through pain and torment, God delights in that. Really? Really? Is that, is that this God that we serve? Now, I'm not saying that God on the other side is going to give us wealth and health and prosperity. But does God expect us to inflict personal pain upon ourselves to persuade him to keep his promises? I think not. Does God want us to trust him in the middle of our trials? Or all of a sudden, in the middle of the trial... When you get the bad news that cancer might be involved, okay, God, now I really, really, I really need your help. And God, if you heal me of this cancer, then I will give you something really special. I will sacrifice my firstborn. As if that's the God we worship. And you do know this, that people in the world, the gods that they worship, that is the way they approach them, yes? In some cultures, And I think that's where he's been inflicted or affected by a lower view of God that his God has to be persuaded to see see him through. His God might back out. His God may, may take more pleasure and more pity upon him if he inflicts personal pain upon his life. That's a low view of God. That's where I see the problem with the vow. The problem is a display of a lack of confidence and trust that he doesn't have a full faith, though he operated to some degree by faith, when he was in the midst of the height, the peak of the battle situation, that's when he starts faltering. Which, by the way, when we're in the peak or in the midst of the trial, is it easy for us to falter at those moments? Yeah. Yeah, and so now they were really tested. What is our view of God when there is, when there is the real trial, death, disease? When there's the real trial of loss or real, real trial of opposition and confrontation? How do we respond? Do we maintain that consistent trust in the Lord or do we stagger, do we flaw? In the middle of these moments, as we've put up here, you get the bad doctor's report. In the middle of being laid off, in the middle of losing a close relationship, you thought this was the one. 
You thought this was the person that you were going to spend your life with, and all of a sudden it's done, it's over with. And you've just lost the love of your life. Now you're tested in your faith. You're tested in your faith when all of a sudden you've got some major, major conflict, something happening in school from a, a co-worker, and you could, really, you could really lose your reputation. You could really lose your career. Now, where do we trust? How do we trust God? Now, how do we follow through? With all of a sudden, some of those really tough moments in life, okay, do we continue to trust and believe our God will see us through? That He will help us, that He will give us the strength, that all things work together for good? Or do we start all of a sudden throwing out the plea bargaining to get out of the middle of the difficulty? A view of God. How do we approach God? Okay. Do we panic in the middle of the peak of the pinnacle of a problem? Jephthah did. I think there was a panic for a moment and it cost him dearly. It cost him in whatever, whatever the conclusion, the life of his daughter or generations of children, either way, generations, but social, these, the immediate uh, loss of family member to the temple. He, it still cost him dearly because he was rash, he was scared, he was fearful, he was in a moment of panic saying, oh God, I need something. Can you, can you really, really keep your word and I'm going to persuade you with this vow? That is a weak moment in his life. There is a, there is a, t- a challenge that I read and it was, I don't know where it came from, what Sunday school, what church, but they asked the kids to write something of what they believe about God. Here's what one eight-year-old wrote that, to me it's just profound from an eight-year-old at any time, but his simplicity of God. He says, one of God's main jobs is making people. <laughs> He makes these to put in place of the ones that die so there will be enough people to take care of all the things here on earth. He doesn't make the grown-ups, just the babies. I think that's because they are smaller and easier to make. (laughs) And that way he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to walk and talk. He can just leave that up to the moms and dads. You shouldn't always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and he can take me back anytime he wants. I think that works out pretty good for you and me. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. If you don't believe in God, you'll be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you. Like at camp. When you go to camp, you get lonely. But God, if you believe God is there, he's your friend at camp. It's good to know he's around when you're scared of the dark or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown into the deep water by the big bullies. Anyway, that's what I believe about God and I think I can trust him. Don't you wish we had that simplistic faith? But we get older and all of a sudden we make things a little bit more complicated and sometimes the complication is we diminish God at moments in our life. Jephthah had another low view. Okay? This, is, this is another problem. He held on to a low view of other people. Now, he, he, in, in commending him, he forgave those who years before they gave him, they kicked him out and he had to restructure his life and things are moving forward. But all of a sudden he runs into another situation where he gets really hurt. I mean, really deeply hurt. After he is really serving the Lord. He goes to battle. He wins the battle and all of a sudden he has to deal with this thing at home and then on the heels of dealing with that thing with his daughter that broke his heart, look at chapter 12. The men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward, and they said to Jephthah, Wherefore, did you pass over to fight against the children of Amnon? You didn't even call us. We're going to burn your house down with you in it. 
And it goes on, Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I called you, oh, wait a minute, you said I never called you, I did. He says, when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. You didn't come and help me. And when I saw that you delivered me not, I put my life in my hands. I passed over against the children of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore, why are you come up against me this day to fight with me? What have I done wrong with you? I called you. I protect. Oh, 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 oh. Go back to chapter 10. Go back and look at a phrase here. These are the children of Ephraim. Go back to chapter 10 and catch something. Go down to about verse 9. The children of Amnon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah, against Benjamin, and against who else? The house of Ephraim, so that all of them, Israel, were what? Sore distressed. So the Ephraimites had a problem with the Ammonites. I just delivered you from the Ammonites, and you're attacking me? Okay, well, now, wait a minute. Is this the first time the Ephraimites did this? Do you remember? About three weeks ago? I know this is a real press, okay? We talked about the Ephraimites in another message when they attacked another guy. Another guy. There's a lot of similarities between these two guys. One is Gideon, who's legitimate, and Jephthah, who's illegitimate. One is a rock-solid family, as far as, you know, they supported him, and his dad even comes to his rescue. <laughs> Jephthah, dysfunctional. One of them, the dad defends, remember when Gideon tore down the, the city altar, and they want to kill him, and dad comes to his defense? Huh. Now, you know, dad doesn't defend Jephthah. You can keep on going. One is weak and fearful at first. One showed strong, fearless traits. One's a farmer. One's a soldier. You know, one's inexperienced at war. One's experienced. One has doubts. Well, so does the other. Here's where they start having parallels with some distinction. One has many kids. One has one kid. Both are victorious in battle. Both of them have a problem. No, I take it back. Both of them, the problem, the Ephraimites have a problem with them. It happened to Gideon. Back in chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, when they had broken the back of the enemy and they have the enemy fleeing, Gideon is pursuing them. While he's pursuing, he's confronted by the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites challenge him in the midst of the war. They challenge him, and, they, and it says that they come and they chided with him sharply. You remember this now? They said, why is it that you didn't come and call us? And they're complaining in the middle of being relieved from the invasion that's took place. They, they aren't excited that there's been a victory. They're complaining. They're not excited and appreciate what Gideon has done. They're mad that they didn't get front row and center, you know, the first chair in the battle. They're upset. And the questions that we asked here about three weeks ago is, okay, if they were so anxious to fight, why didn't they lead the fight during the eight years of occupation? Why didn't they do something with the Midianites at that point? Why, why is it that when Gideon sent notes out to say, you know, the text to say, come and join me, of the 32,000 that first joined him, there was no Ephraimites. Didn't they get the text? Didn't they get the message? So here they were, they were just jealous, critical individuals, and we made some unfortunate observations at that time. We had, in that sermon, we, made, we said, okay, this we can mark down. In times of ministry, opposition usually comes from within. And we illustrate it from the book of Acts, that some of the greatest opposition they had was from within the church, not just without the persecution. One of the harshest criticisms we face from comes from those who will stay on the sidelines. We made observation about that. Usually they wait until the battle of the ministry is done. Then they come and they complain about how it should have been done. 
Or this, often such critics are more interested in their own interests than God's interests. That was the Ephraimites. The battle was still going on. The war was still going on. And they're more interested in getting applause and the glory than beat the enemy of God. Win a victory for God. We made this observation a couple weeks back then. That they are more interested in getting the glory than giving the glory to God or to other people who deserve a thank you. That's the Ephraimites. That was them. Now they show up. Years later, they do the same thing again. They do the exact same thing to another judge, being Jephthah. In this case, the war is over. The Ammonites have been broken. They, the campaign has taken all the way across the other side of Jordan, and they've, they've been defeated. But they come and they accuse Jephthah of not giving them the credit that they deserved. Not calling them, is what they say, to come and join. Because we are, and I remember I pointed this out, they were the largest tribe at the time. They housed Shiloh and Bethel, the two main tabernacle cities, they were known as the strongest warriors, and you, you just didn't, give, didn't appreciate us. You didn't call us. And so Jephthah is talking to them, and they threaten, this time, they threaten to kill him. This is serious stuff. They're just not complaining. They want his hide. And they're going to do it in a very, very, very bad way from Jewish perspective. It would be horrible, 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 horrible to be burned to death. I mean, not just the thought of being burned to death, but to have your body consumed and not given what they consider in the Old Testament a proper burial. This would have been a horrific way to die. So they are challenging him to the hilt. And Gideon's response was very tactful. He said, oh, didn't you guys do a good job by stopping the, the people retreating? This is in chapter 8. You were, they were retreating. You guys stopped them at the fords and you wiped out many of the enemy. Jephthah isn't as tactful. Jephthah is just going to, he's going to lay it out. He just basically says, you guys are wrong. You guys are absolutely wrong. And he confronts them very, quite harshly and quite pointedly. And basically the questions that you and I should just be exuding from us is, where was their thanksgiving for the victory? Um, you know, they had been oppressed too. Now they're relieved of this oppression. They benefited from it. In fact, you know, the idea that we could be asking is, you know, if they were so anxious to fight, where were they the last 18 years? For 18 years, the Ammonites have been oppressing the people. The Ephraimites did nothing for 18 years. If you're such big bad guys, why didn't you lead the battle? Why didn't Gilead come and ask you guys? Because you've proven yourself that you sit on the sidelines until the victory is won. And then you come out and you talk tough. Then you're big bad guys. And so it's very clear that what we have here is Gideon points out, I'm sorry, Jephthah points out, I did call you. You know, your criticism is ill-founded. It's not factual. Which, by the way, can I take you back to another observation, unfortunate observation? This is important. Often people who are given to criticism, they don't have their facts right. You ever notice that? They don't have facts right or they don't present them accurately. They usually present a twisted version of history. And so this is what's happening here. And so here's Gideon. Or I'm sorry, here's Jephthah. Now I've got Gideon stuck in my brain. Jephthah is pointing out that he risked everything for them. And so why are you mad at me? You guys, I gave, put my life on the line. Where were you then? And now you're going to kill me? And so he points it out. He challenges them. They don't back down. They don't accept the idea that they're misinformed, that they're mistaken. They won't do it. In fact, they intensify their comments. Verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead, and he was getting ready to fight with them. And the men of Gilead smote them because they had said, 
you Gileadites, you're, refuge, you're, ref, you're fugitives from Ephraim, among the Ephraimites and among the, Manasseh, the Manassites. What's that mean? What were they saying? There's two possibilities. That what they were saying after they criticized uh, Jephthah, they criticized his troops. The people had gone to battle. He ba- they basically are saying to the troops, you are fugitives from us. You are people who deserted us. You weren't big, bad, tough like we are. You were deserters. You don't rank like we rank. Or the possibility is, you people were from our clan. You should be listening to us because we would be better leaders than Jephthah. Whatever whatever it is, whatever exact it is, they attack not only Jephthah, but his troops. And they belittle everyone in this, in this campaign, that nobody is as good as they are. Nobody is as knowledgeable as they are. Nobody is as proficient as they are. And so what happens is Jephthah gets really ticked. And so do his troops. And it's an offense. But he go. I think he goes too far. He attacks the Ephraimites. It seems to me that he goes way too far too long in the attack for these reasons. Okay? They still have enemies in the land. They have the Philistines on the other side of the Jordan River. We've already read that this morning. We pointed it out. On one side is the Ammonites. On the other side, you have the uh, Philistines who are a problem. He carries the battle to the point that the Ephraimites are beaten. And they're beaten and they're trying to go home. Watch, watch how it unfolds here as you read through. This is one of those stories that you read about and you, you forget the setting at times when they test them. The Gileadites took the passages of Jordan, verse 5, before the Ephraimites. That is, the, to get across the low areas of the Jordan River to get across the stream. And it was so that when those from Ephraim, which were escaped, trying to get back across the river, they would say, let me go over. The men who were holding the river, the men of Gilead, the ones who were with Jephthah, they would say, are you an Ephraimite? No, 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 I'm not. And they said, okay, we're going to test you. We want you to say the word Shibboleth, which basically is the idea, the test is ear of corn. Nothing major. But they couldn't do the shh. They would do shh. Because it was their dialectic peculiarity. And so they would test everybody. Are you, are you Ephraimite? No. Say Shibboleth. Shibboleth would kill them. The slaughter, this is the point. The slaughter goes on. Watch if you read through. Okay. It says, and if he said Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right, then they took him, slew him at the passages. There fell at that time of the Ephraimites 42,000 people. 42,000 people. Okay? Now, some have different renderings of the exact specific numbers, but the point is, a huge number, and I think it's 42,000 is what the text is emphasizing, that he is saying very clearly, they slaughtered a lot of fellow Jews. That this was an extreme point of... By the way, were the Ephraimites wrong? Yes. Did they, do, did they go too far in their attacks? Yes. Did they deserve some type of uh, smack across the head? Yes, they did. But friend, 42,000 of your kinsmen, when you still have other enemies to face, that's too many. You've depleted one of the 12 tribes to an unnecessary... They're fellow Jews. You've still got foes to be facing. God had said you're supposed to be working together and we got after our brethren and killed 42,000 of them. Jephthah, you've gone a little bit too far. You, you, you took it a little bit. Now, uh, I have one commentator that says, I understand why Jephthah did it. 
You have to give Jephthah, it wasn't an overreaction. Jephthah, he's exhausted from the other battle. He's tired. And when we get tired, we get cranky. We often just go to an extreme. Well, that may be true, that when you and I get tired, we may overreact to situations, but it doesn't make it right. Well, one pointed out, that same author said, he's still upset over the loss of his daughter. He is so upset about her, that's why he overreacted. True, that could be that, that it caused him emotional pain, and so he's ultra-sensitive to any type of criticism because he not only put his life on the line, but now he gave up his daughter for this battle in his concept. And so he's going, going to, over, but it doesn't make it right. It might explain, but it doesn't make it right. The point is, he can't justify what he did. So I have to ask myself a question. Do I ever act like the Ephraimites? Do I ever do what they did? Do I ever become so critical about how other people are doing service that I push people too far? Do, do, do we ever do what this person did to uh, D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody was preaching, and afterwards somebody came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you share the gospel in your preaching. Mr. Moody's response was, well, I'm always willing to learn Okay, if you can tell me how to do it better, I'm, I'm wide open. Tell me what method you use to share the gospel. The person's response was, um, well, um, I, I guess I don't really have a method of sharing the gospel. That meant I don't share the gospel. But I'm telling you how to do it. Mr. Moody's response was classic. I'll tell you what. I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it at all. Okay, so I'll stick to what I do. Okay? And I, we understand that that, can, that type of thing can happen. They, you know, but I have to ask myself, do I become critical of others who are doing a work for the Lord when I should just be quiet? Maybe I would do it different. But they're serving the Lord. And it's not about what, the way I would do it, it's serve Christ. Do I say things that hurt and stir up others to a point that causes them an overreaction? Do, do I twist and ignore the facts to justify my criticisms, my positions? You know, my attacks that I want to make at somebody in my family, somebody in my work, somebody in my school, somebody that I'm interacting with. Am I like the Ephraimites? That I attack, I twist, I don't give all the facts, don't look at them. Am I willing to continue to do that without changing? These guys did it and they should have learned with Gideon, but they keep on doing it. Maybe it's a family trait. Wouldn't that surprise us? That criticism is passed down, from, that critical spirit can be passed generation after generation. Boy, what a warning to us parents. So here we have, okay, the point is, their attitude was wrong. It should have been addressed. But in our story tonight, we're talking about Jephthah. So I have to ask myself, when somebody hurts me, if somebody does something to my family or threaten, or if somebody criticizes you because you're my family and I become defensive of you, naturally, and that hurts... Do I overreact like a Jephthah does? Do you do that? Do you at times, do you hold on to hurts too long? Do you go too far in trying to get them to understand the hurt? You've been showing mercy, I've been showing mercy. Jephthah was showing great mercy. And now he isn't showing any mercy whatsoever because he's letting anger control. He's letting the pain just make him do too much, too far, to retaliate. This is wrong. It needs to be addressed. This idea of being angry and holding on to the hurts, 
man, we can, we can jump to a lot of different, different scenarios. We can jump to a lot of passages that talk about it. The story, given about a, a man coming up to that, one of those gate border, uh, porters that's there at the curbside where you can check in. He's, he's working the curbside attendant, is trying to check in his bags, and this man harasses him and gives him a, such a hard time, complains about everything the airlines is doing, everything and how all of them are lazy people, and this, that, and the other, and is giving that clerk a really, really, really hard time, berating him, how he you know, had to ask some questions for clarification, and he just, he just absolutely slayed that man with his verbal barrages. The man gets his luggage checked in. He walks away. The lady next in line says, you know, comes up and says, I'm really sorry you had to put up with that. How do you do that? How do you put up with somebody like that who's so unreasonable, so critical? And the man looked up. He said, well, you know, he said, it's, uh, I can handle it. And she says, really? What do you do? He says, well, you just do something like this. This man is going to New York. I sent his bags to Brazil. So, you know. <laughs> okay. It's humorous, it's funny. Is it right? Okay. The Bible tells us a fool gives full vent to his anger. Okay, and warns us about keeping our temper under control. Verse after verse talks about the hot-tempered man stirs up the strife, but slow to anger, slow to wrath is so important that we're not supposed to be quick in our responses, that anger resides in the lap of the fools. We get into the book of Romans and he warns us, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. In fact, don't take revenge. And this is the passage that talks about heap coals of fire upon those who would do you wrong. You bless them. Do good to them because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The man's anger doesn't do the righteousness of God. There are verses that abound. There are stories that abound. We can go back to 1894. The uh, Baltimore Orioles up in Boston playing the Bean Eaters was the name of the team, team at that time, the Boston Bean Eaters. They're in a baseball game. And in the middle of the baseball game, the third baseman, his name just escaped me, the third baseman for the uh, team of Baltimore got into a fight with one guy who was rounding the bases and felt that he, uh, he came into the base too hard when he was sliding in, and they got into fisticuffs. Soon both dugouts empty out. They get into this fight on the field. Then it spills over into the stands there in Boston. And they get into people are fighting between the different fans. And one of the Baltimore fans that was there started the entire stadium on fire. It burnt down along with 107 homes in that area. Just because of something that happened at third base. Can people overreact? Yeah. yeah. Can you and I? Hmm. So we have to look and say, okay, grieve not the Spirit of God. Whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from us. He goes on, he says, along with malice, that is that ill will towards others, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be merciful because you've been mercied. The idea is don't follow Jephthah's pattern. Even after you've done right, it doesn't justify treating others in a wrong, vengeful fashion. Be careful of the vows. Be careful of the vengeance. Be an individual that even when you get the victory, you maintain a victorious walk with God Almighty following Him. But again, I'd remind you, it goes back to your view of God. And your view of God is really based on how much do you study God. Harry Ironsides, you've probably heard of him. 
He's in his latter years after he's done a tremendous ministry. He comes and he does a series at a seminary down south where he's going to preach. And he's at this point, at the very end of his life, he can't even read anymore. But he was known for being such an avid reader. Not only of the Bible, but he had one of the largest personal libraries of any preacher in the United States during that era. And so he's coming, he's preaching, and he's blind. Almost blind, totally blind. His wife would read the passage as he was preaching at the seminary through the book of Isaiah. She would read the text and then she'd step away and he'd preach from, the, from you know, what was read. In that series, he's winding it down and he made this comment to the seminarians. And everybody knew his, his legacy about you know, being a great expositor, being one who preached the word, who studied the word and who had a fabulous library and all those good things. And he made this comment about knowing God and how he wishes he had gotten to know more about God based on this idea of getting into the Word of God. He said, Men, I wish I had read other books less. And holding up his Bible said, I had read this one more. That's how we get to know God. That's how we think about God, learn about Him, and it affects us to have good, mature thoughts and actions that elevate and exalt the God we serve. Help us to do that this week.